Welcome to Remnant Stew, the podcast that proves that things can quickly balloon right out of control. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your host, Leah. And together with Phil, we make up the Stew crew. Say hi, Phil. Hi, Phil. (laughs) That That was good, Phil. Today we'll be discussing balloonacy, when the cheerful party and parade props go bad. If you have an appetite for intriguing and bizarre true stories, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for a curious helping of remnant stew. Oh, you know, uh, my wife was telling me um, that uh, she was blowing up a balloon one time, one of those long ones, and uh, I think it was for a party, and suddenly the thing popped and slapped her right in the face. You know, it was was, uh, painful, but it was kind of funny when she was telling me about it. So... Um, they can be tricky, those balloons, can't they? I don't know that I've ever had any balloon incidents. Knock on wood, uh, it could always happen. But why don't you start today? Why don't you go first? Well, okay, and speaking of my wife, uh, my wife's from the great city of Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland gets kind of a bad rap, you know. Um, the, I've heard it called the mistake by the lake, and uh, <laughs> I never really had thought too much about Cleveland until I... Uh, until uh, till we got married, and I visited uh, her uh, visited her old hometown with her. Uh, her sister still lives up in that area, and I really like Cleveland. I, th- I think it's a really neat, uh, fascinating place. It's so different, though, from where I grew up in Texas. But kind of uh, kind of adding to their to their image was a pretty serious balloon incident that happened back in uh, 1986, April of 1986. It was something that was supposed to be a great thing called Balloon Fest of 86 and uh, the thing is that the 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 there's a big scheme that was actually uh, sponsored by the United Way was it was a fundraising effort and they filled one and a half million helium balloons and caught them all on this huge net right over the main uh, public square in downtown Cleveland and then they were going to release them it was going to be a big aha moment you know when all the balloons got released Thousands of volunteers worked a full night and a morning in a fenced-off area covered with a loose net ceiling in the central public square. Before the big ta-da, the scene, the scene had uh, evolved to look like some kind of a writhing, oversized ball pit monster. <laughs> You've seen some pictures of it. It's, uh, there's actually, if you go to YouTube and just uh, type in Balloon Fest 86, the, the pictures look like uh, something that's from an animated uh, uh, series, but actually it was it was real. Um, suddenly the weather started uh, turning bad on them, and uh, so they had to make a decision. Uh, do we hold off and let the weather go by? But no, no, they said let her rip, open them up that that, and so the balloons were released. They were re- that is a pretty popular thing to to do a balloon release. Right. Uh, not always such a good thing though. No, and I, I think it used to be more popular than it is is these days. I can remember you know as a kid watching football games and they would always do a big balloon release before well anyway um for a while it was really an incredible display there was a photographer named tom sheridan and he captured the captured the event on film and the images are are really unbelievable and i like the the article that i'm looking here uh it comes from gizmodo i believe uh and it um um the the writer described it as uh, somehow equal parts genuinely heart-filling expressions of wonder 
horror film urban infestation <laughs> and terrifying unidentified <laughs> civic explosion. Then the asteroid field of uh, airborne debris clouded the sky. They shut down a runway at Cleveland's Hopkins Airport. They interrupted Coast Guard's attempts to rescue a pair of fishermen. They also spooked some prize-winning horses uh, uh, so badly that they injured themselves. They generally made a mess of things, uh, uh, but just huge, huge amounts of balloons as they came settling uh, in, in the land and on Lake Erie, uh, just outside of Cleveland. And so it was made a big mess. Uh, they, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but um, but didn't uh, didn't work out too well. A good idea gone bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and when I was researching, I came across a story as well, and I have a little bit more information on the the two fishermen. Yeah. So the day before the balloon launch, and we have a picture of this. It's crazy. <laughs> well, not of the fishermen, but the day before the balloon launch, two fishermen went out to Lake Erie and failed to make it back. Their boat was found anchored and otherwise fine on the lake, but the men were nowhere to be found. The Coast Guard speculated that the boat had maybe capsized temporarily, tossing the pair from the boat into the water. Mm. There was a three-day search for the men, but they were not found. One of the problems with the search was that balloons had landed on the water and thousands of them thousands of them we have a picture of that and we'll trying to find website. a bobbing head among all of those balloons floating on the water it, it just absolutely impossible it just uh, it looks like a, a park full of balloons as but, far as you can see and so one of the men's widows actually sued the united way yeah. and others for 3.2 million dollars the men's bodies washed up on shore a couple of weeks later yeah, kind of had a sad event a sad ending there for sure uh for those families um, but uh, didn't didn't help cleveland's image as the mistake by the lake but uh, i still love cleveland anyway <laughs> and speaking of balloons especially helium balloons when you think of helium balloons you can't help but think of macy's thanksgiving parade oh, i love those big balloons yeah well, the parade started in 1924, which makes this year's parade number 96. So it's uh -huh. almost 100 years old. Uh, most of the balloons, now they didn't start out with the balloons. I think the very first one was in 1927, so not too long after. The very first one was, can you guess? Um, was, it, was it Mickey Mouse? No, it was Felix the Cat. Oh, Felix the Cat, right. Okay. He was filled with air, not helium, so he was held up with stilts. He did get tangled in some telephone wires along the parade route and oh. caught fire, though. Oh, that's <laughs> it, not a good start. No, not a good start. <laughs> and yet they persisted with the whole balloon thing. Right. The flames if were extinguished. First you don't succeed. I mean, you know, why that, give up? That's right. They put better. out the flames pretty quickly, though. Well, that's good. Then. Um, most of uh, Macy's uh, parade balloons are between five and six stories high. Oh, they're huge. Somewhere between 30 and 60 feet long, and each balloon requires about 90 handlers. Wow. In all, there are about 2,000 to 3,000 balloon handler volunteers per parade. These handlers must weigh at least 120 pounds and be in good health. Okay. <laughs> A few of those volunteers designated as leaders go through training in aerodynamics, geometry, and physics. Hmm. They also practice handling the balloon ahead of time in a large field. Each balloon also has a police officer that, march that marches along the parade route with it. Yeah, because they're walking through a really tight confined spaces right right that's right through, the, through the streets of new york right that's right and in spite of all of those safety precautions as well as uh it being tethered to two utility vehicles each weighing 800 pounds there's still a lot of mishaps uh -huh. 
Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, one of the, one really cool fact about it is when the balloons were first used, at the end they were just released and allowed to fly away. Let it go. <laughs> just let it go. This, let it go. And so can you imagine just driving down the street and all of a sudden seeing a big Felix smurf? Felix the cat's or, coming at Felix you. Felix the cat or a smurf <laughs> or something. But uh, there were, and there was also a reward given to anyone who would find a balloon and return it. But as people are people, uh, a lot of them would shoot the balloons down uh-huh. or tear the balloon apart in order to bring in a piece, hoping for the claiming of the reward. reward. Look, really, this really is a piece of Felix. Look, That's right. Like That's right. The practice came <laughs> to a final end, though, when one loose balloon got caught in a plane propeller, oh, and uh, and it almost brought it da- crashing down. Yeah. Another article, though, gave a different story to that, or a different angle to that story, that the pilot deliberately crashed into the airborne balloon, thinking it would be funny. <laughs> but quickly, but the situation quickly turned scary. Well, and she would, it was... That a, was the era of... Uh, of of daredevil pilots, it, I think. Well, right? and and it was a female pilot. No, oh, no, true. we're gonna not focus on that. And she, <laughs> <laughs> she was, she was, uh, she had a uh, an instructor in there with her. And so, as the plane was spiraling to the ground, her instructor instructor had to trade places with her, and she almost actually fell out of the plane during yeah. that. And, and he was able to guide the plane in safely. And both pilot and, and instructor faced serious investigation for violating several aviation rules. I would think so. And I, I like the idea of, um, hey, there's a big plane. Let's fly the a big balloon. Let's fly the plane into it. It'll be funny. Yeah, that'll be fun. Watch me. <laughs> It'll be great. Uh, but people, now, people will laugh. now the balloons are simply deflated and stored until next year. Go yeah, figure. Good thinking. I think they've gotten smarter as time has gone along. Now, in 1957... A Popeye the Sailor Man balloon had a hat that captured and held quite a bit of rainwater. When turning a corner too quickly, apparently, <laughs> the water caused Popeye to tip forward and dumped all that freezing rainwater on the crowd mm. below. That's not fun. Blow then, me down. <laughs> blow me down. <laughs> then in 1993, uh, the first video game based character, Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog, appeared. Uh-huh. High, yeah. high winds caused uh, Sonic to crash into an off-duty police officer and a young girl. Both suffered only minor injuries, but Sonic was nearly completely destroyed. Tried to go supersonic, probably. High out. winds make flying these parade balloons very dangerous. In 2005, high winds caused a 515-pound M&M balloon to crash into a streetlight, making debris fall on two sisters, seriously mm. injuring them. That's not good. One sister had to remove had to receive nine stitches in her head. Both sisters were compensated with a lifetime supply of M and M's. Well, that's worthwhile because I you, mean, M and M's. If you'd like to sponsor us, we'll certainly give you a plug because uh, they're just as good as now as they were when I was five years old. That's right, stitches. But you know, okay, M and M's. That wasn't the first imp- incident with lampposts, though. In 1997, a cat in the hat balloon hit a lamppost, also causing debris to fall onto spectators. Four people were injured, putting one of them into a 24-day coma. That man sued the city for $395 million and settled for an undisclosed sum four years later. Probably less than that. (laughs) So Macy's Day Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving Day balloons, uh, pretty dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'll have to to pay more attention to that parade this coming year. 
Well, have you ever been in a in a hot air balloon? I haven't. Yeah. I, I want to, but I haven't. I haven't either, but I have seen them, and they certainly look look fascinating. I've known some people that have gone up, and they say it's just really an amazing experience. It's it's, uh, it's so quiet as you're as you're drifting along uh, up in the air currents, and and you know the the view is is stunning. I believe out in New Mexico they have the big balloon fests every year. But it uh, kind of got me interested in uh, some of the origins of balloon flight. Um, the, in fact, the first beings to ever embark on a hot air balloon ride were not humans. Did you know that? No, uh, I didn't. In fact, it was a sheep, a rooster, and a duck. Now, this oh. sounds like a great Disney movie. but uh, <laughs> That actually sounds like the beginning of a joke. Yeah, a sheep, a rooster, <laughs> and a duck <laughs> and walk into they, a balloon. <laughs> how did they choose How did they choose that? I mean, was it all in one balloon? It was sheep? all in the same balloon, yes. It was all in the same balloon. And they just chose uh, that? I guess that's what was available. Yeah. <laughs> here, the, let's just stick these in here. Now, uh, uh, much of the early history of ballooning takes place in France. In fact, these there were two brothers, Joseph Michel and Jacques Montgolfier, developed a hot air balloon in Annonay, France, and they demonstrated it publicly on September 19, 1783, for King Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette at Versailles. I understand they served cake uh, for all the visitors. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, and I assume this not. was when she still had her. Yeah, head. That's, she still had her head by then, by the, <laughs> at that time. Anyway, first they uh, they made an unmanned flight lasting 10 minutes, after which time the flight with the animals occurred. The balloon was connected to a tether, and it reached a height of about 1,500 feet, and it traveled about two miles before making a very soft, safe landing. And you'll be happy to know that none of the animals were harmed by their unusual trip. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Sheep, rooster, and a duck. Right. I think the, the sheep is kind of... You know, the rooster and the duck, they could at least fly a little right. bit if they if something they, they went awry. But, yeah. but but the sheep was just, you know, they were he was at the mercy of exactly. whatever happened. Yeah, let's put the sheep in there, you know. That's uh, that's I, I grew up raising sheep and they're kinda of docile, but uh, you know, um they um they, they made their trip pretty well. Now, three months later, the first uh flight with human passengers was made. Um actually it was no November twenty first, seventeen eighty three. Now, King Louis the Sixteenth, he had uh, originally decreed that uh, that condemned criminals would be the first test pilots, but there were two Frenchmen that wanted that honor for themselves: uh, Jean Francois Pilatre, de Rosier, along with Marquis Francois de uh, Arlendes. I'm now, probably now did you, up those Yeah, I was going to say, did you look up these pronunciations? I did not. I did not. <laughs> well, anyway, these two gentlemen petitioned successfully for the honor. And uh, they were the first manned uh, balloon flight, and that was in 1783, November 21st, 1783, in France. Um, about 11 years later, the French were involved in a conflict uh, in, uh, along the border with uh, France and Belgium called the Battle of Fleurus. And uh, somebody had the bright idea, one of the Frenchmen, why don't we use one of these nifty hot air balloons as an observation platform to spy out the battlefield and see what our enemies are, are doing. And so they did. That was the first time that uh, it was in 1794 that a hot air balloon had been used in, uh, in battle. Hot air balloons uh, rides today almost always uh, end with a glass of champagne or two. Uh, most people might just think that's a nice way of rounding out a special event, but really that uh, tradition also goes back to those early times in France as uh, more and more uh, French noblemen took to the uh, 
opportunity to uh, take to the skies and in a balloon but often they landed in farmers fields and the farmers weren't too happy to have uh, some of their crops uh, messed up by these balloons landing and so the, uh, the the nobleman always carried along some champagne with him to offer to the farmers uh, to uh, help uh, soften their mood a little bit about having to put up with this balloon in their field. That is probably the most French thing <laughs> I could think of. Yes, I'm trespassing. Sorry you're angry. Let's champagne? have some champagne. That's right. Oh, okay. That, that makes everything better. Oh, uh, why not? Yes. Well, you might think that was the most French thing that you've ever thought of, but I think this next one is even more French than that uh, because uh, there was actually once a duel fought in France from balloons. Uh, most how, of us, how could we make this more dangerous? <laughs> right, for sure. When most of us think of duels, we think of white gloves and Western shootouts. But in 1808, a couple of Frenchmen who were, of course, in love with the same woman, an <laughs> opera dancer, they, were in, they engaged in a very unusual duel. Feisty and with a definite flair for the dramatic, the French are legendary for using duels to settle disagreements and to defend their honor. In fact, it's said that Louis XIII back in the 1600s, granted a whopping 8,000 pardons for murders associated with duels. You wonder there's many Frenchmen left because they were killing each other off in duels so so rapidly back in the day. But in 1808, a different kind of uh, face-off took place in the skies above Paris. It involved two Frenchmen, Monsieur de Grand Prix and Monsieur de Pique. Both had been secretly seeing Mademoiselle Tirevet, a renowned dancer at the Paris Opera. It was decided that the winner of the duel would win her dainty manicured hand, or more eloquently put, Mademoiselle Tirevet would bestow her smiles on the survivor. <laughs> the contest was to take place 2,000 feet in the air, with each man firing a blunderbuss at the other man's balloon. Yes, that's right. The men weren't going to aim at each other. They were trying to shoot down much larger targets, each other's balloon. Apparently, the arrogant Frenchman believed that a traditional showdown would be, well, too commonplace and unimaginative. How much more intriguing, <laughs> they reasoned, to turn their testosterone-fueled battle into a mid-air dogfight. Love this, uh, this article comes to us from something called the Vintage News. On the morning of um, May 3, 1808, in Paris's Tuileries Gardens, the two men climbed into their identical hot air balloon baskets. Each was allowed a shotgun. And a co-pilot, this is where it really gets interesting, a co-pilot to help him operate the balloon, which means, incredibly, that each man's respective sidekick fully expected to die if his guy had a lousy aim. The, you just have to take a moment to appreciate how much effort went into this act of stupidity. How did you talk, talk, talk somebody into this? If we win, it'll be great. This was... This was this is unbelievable that somebody would go to that much trouble just to kill each other. <laughs> and, and take along a friend. The cords securing the balloons to the ground were cut, and the balloons ascended into the air as the crowd of curious spectators, many of whom simply thought they were watching a friendly balloon race, cheered them on. The balloons rose to half a mile off the ground and were separated by about 80 yards when the signal was given from below. The duel is officially on. De Pique got off the first shot, but inexplicably <laughs> failed to hit his uh, enormous target. It would be funny if the, if the results weren't so tragic. Grand Paris then returned fire, faring much better. He hit his mark, collapsing De Pique's balloon, which descended earthward with, and this is a quote from the original uh, witnesses, fearful rapidity, sending both he and his faithful yet ill-fated co-pilot to their untimely deaths. No, it wasn't pretty. When the balloon hit the ground, 
They were, as one observer somewhat indelicately described it, dashed to pieces on a housetop. That didn't work out too well for him and his co-pilot. On the other hand, Grand Prix uh, celebrated with his, uh, his gutsy, though not particularly hard-fought victory by sending the hot air balloon soaring even higher into the clouds before returning safely to Earth with his trusty co-pilot, presumably to claim his prize, the lovely Mademoiselle Trevette. So there you go. Don't just have any. If you're going to have a duel, really have a spectacular one, not just ordinary commonplace. That, that needs to be an opera. I would go see that. And <laughs> Maybe Madame Trevette uh, could act it out, in fact. And, and then she runs off with someone else. Right, that's right. <laughs> runs off with the co-pilot. The co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, now, the whole idea of, uh, of ballooning and, and the military, we mentioned earlier, came to the United States during the Civil War. And, in fact, um, President Lincoln uh, utilized um, uh, balloons uh, in, the, in the Union effort uh, in the Civil War. And it all became uh, because of a, a demonstration by a fellow named Thaddeus Lowe in July 1861. Uh, by the way, this comes to us from airandspacescience.edu. Uh, Thaddeus Lowe offered a demonstration to President Lincoln and Union Army generals concerning the potential of using hot air balloons for military observation. Lincoln was so impressed with the demonstration that he appointed Lowe as chief aeronaut of the Union Army Balloon Corps. That was, probably had to think of a name for that, you know, in 1861. Chief Aeronaut. That's a title. I that like is that. absolutely. All right. Good On title. June 1st, 1862, Lowe floated above a fierce Civil War battle with a silk hydrogen balloon. From the wicker basket dangling a thousand feet above ground, he telegraphed a message to northern generals on the ground. Union troops were finally driving back the Confederate forces. Lowe's message was translated to the War Department in Washington, where President Abraham Lincoln read his, uh, his flying spy's good news with relief. In fact, for two years during the Civil War, a corps of balloonists led by Thaddeus Lowe spied on the Confederate Army. They counted rebel soldiers, detected troop movements, and directed artillery fire against enemy positions. Lowe and his aeronauts provided valuable intelligence to the Union Army, even after the balloons became targets of Confederate shooters and saboteurs. I would think they would catch on to that. Let's shoot that big thing up there. They're telling them where we are. Though his work was generally successful, it was not fully appreciated by all members of the military. This strikes of jealousy to me. And disputes <laughs> over his operation and his pay scale forced him to resign in 1863. He returned to civilian life. By the way, he's also credited with inventing a, a, one of the first ice machines, and uh, there's a mountain named for him, Mount Lowe, out in California. I believe there's an, uh, an observatory on Mount Lowe. Uh, that is also named for him. So there you go. Civil War um, use of, a, of, of hot air balloons. And they finally figured out, hey, let's shoot that thing down. I uh, know. I think that was, <laughs> that was sort of the undoing. Now, it might uh, surprise some people to, to know that uh, there were balloons actually used during World War II. And, in fact, the only deaths in the continental United States to the hands of the Japanese occurred um, because of what they were calling fire balloons. Um, the Japanese, um, between uh, November 1944 and April 90, 1945, the Japanese military launched more than 9,000 pilotless fire balloons. They were balloons with bombs attached to them. Oh, wow. The Japanese had figured out that up in the 30,000-foot uh, stratosphere, 
there was uh, a current, they called it a river in the, in the sky, we call it the jet stream today, that could actually take uh, hydrogen-filled balloons from Japan all the way to North America in three to four days. And so they, they launched about 9,000 of these uh, balloons. They were, they were just put them up there in the jet stream and, and let, them, let them go. Um, the Japanese had a name for this. It was called Operation Fugo. Most of the balloons fell harmlessly into the Pacific Ocean, but at least 300 of them made it all the way to the United States, over 5,000 miles, and they were spotted fluttering in skies over the western U.S. and Canada, all the way from Holy Cross, Alaska, to Nogales, Arizona, even as far east as Grand Rapids, Michigan. In March 1945, one balloon even hit a high-tension line and caused a temporary blackout at, of all places, the Hanford, Washington plant, that was producing plutonium that would be used in the atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki five months later. None of the balloons, however, had, any, uh, had caused any injuries until May 5th, 1945. Reverend Archie Mitchell, in the spring of 1945, for him, that was a season of change. Not only were the minister and his wife, Elsie, expecting their first child, but he had also acquired an, uh, accepted a new post as a pastor at the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church in the sleepy little logging town of Bly, Oregon. Seeking to deepen their newly planted roots, the Mitchells invited five children from their Sunday school class, all between the ages of 11 and 14, onto a picnic amid the bubbling brooks and ponderosa pines of nearby Gerhardt Mountain on the beautiful spring day of May 5, 1945. After lumbering up a one-lane gravel road, Mitchell parked his sedan and began to unload picnic baskets and fishing rods as Elsie, who was five months pregnant, and the children explored a knoll sloping down to the nearby creek. When 13-year-old Joan Patchke spied a strange white canvas on the forest floor, the curious girl summoned up the rest of the group. Look what we found, Elsie called to her husband back in the car. It looks like some kind of a balloon. The pastor glanced over at the group gathered in a tight circle around the, oddly, uh, the, around the oddity about 50 yards away. As one of the children reached down to touch it, the minister began to shout a warning, but he never had a chance to finish. Oh, wow. A huge explosion rocked the placid mountain. Elsie, the unborn baby, and all five of the children were killed almost instantly by the blast. When a forest ranger in the vicinity came upon the, uh, came upon the scene, he found the victims radiating out like spokes around a smoldering crater and the 26-year-old minister beating his wife's burning dress with his, ha- with his bare hands trying to put out the fire. What the U.S. military investigators sent, back, sent to the blast scene immediately knew, but didn't want anybody else to know, was that this strange contraption was a high-altitude balloon bomb launched by Japan to attack North America. Now, citing the need to prevent panic and to avoid giving the enemy location information that could allow them to hone their targeting, the U.S. military censored reports about the Japanese balloon bombs. Although many Bly locals knew the truth, they reluctantly followed the military directives and adopted a code of silence about the tragedy as the media reported that the victims died in an explosion of undetermined origin. By the end of May 1945, however, the military decided that in the interest of public safety to reveal the true cause of the explosion and to warn Americans to beware of any strange white balloons that they might encounter. Information divulged too late, though, for the victims there in Oregon. Ultimately, Fugo was a vast uh, military failure. Few balloons reached their targets, and the jet stream winds are only powerful enough in the wintertime when snow and damp conditions in North American forests 
precluded the ignition of any fires. They were kind of hoping that they would start forest fires and divert uh, attention, but that didn't really work out well. The only casualties they caused were the deaths of the five innocent children and a pregnant woman, the first and only fatalities in the continental United States due to enemy action in World War II. This incident, by the way, is well known in Japan, and it's now common for Japanese tourists visiting the United States to include a stop at this memorial plaque at Gerhardt Mountain to pay their respects. Seventy-five years later, hundreds of potentially dangerous balloons, balloon bombs may still lurk in remote, rugged locations of the West. In fact, in uh, October 2014, a pair of loggers in British Columbia found the remnants of a balloon bomb that was they, uh, destroyed in a controlled explosion before it could result in a repeat of that tragic day in 1945. So interesting, these bombs could still be out there uh, in the, in the, buried in the ground, buried in the forest at various places around the West. Wow. I had no idea about that story. I have been to a, a town called Lakeview, Oregon, which is very near where, where this happened, and um, it was uh, still very much on the minds of the people who were living there, for sure. So if you find something strange in the woods, don't poke it with a stick. Exactly. It could still be a leftover balloon bomb from 1945. Uh, and in, in spite of all of these stories, all of these horrible, tragic right. balloon stories, we are not against balloons. I think we have one really happy story, right? That's right. There's a, we can't end on such a sad note as that. We, uh, we have a, a great story that comes to us out of the United Kingdom um, that uh, is about uh, really quite an amazing coincidence uh, incurring or a, a series a, of series of coincidences uh, involving uh, a balloon. Uh, so let's get right to that. Uh, in 2001, a 10 year old girl named Laura Buxton, she released a mylar balloon from Staffordshire, England. The balloon had been a decoration at her grandparents' 50th anniversary celebration. At her grandfather's suggestion, Laura attached her name and address to the balloon in hopes that whoever finds the balloon would write to her and they could become pen pals. The balloon drifted for several days and 140 miles before finally coming to rest in the town of Milton Lilleborn near Marlboroughard and in the yard of, guess what, another 10-year-old girl who was also named Laura Buxton. That's crazy. That is crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> so Laura Buxton released a balloon. It flew 140 miles and landed in the yard of another girl named Laura Buxton. Same age. Same age. That was the start of a discovery of a series of coincidences involving the two girls who lived a three-hour drive away from each other and are not related. Laura number two who went to Kingsbury Hill School in Marlboro, obeyed the instructions on the balloon tag, which said, please write to Laura Buxton. Laura Buxton, number two, in Milburn, uh, Lilborn, Wiltshire, wrote to Laura Buxton, number one, in Stoke-on-Kent, I'm sorry, Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire, to inform her that her balloon had been found and to report the unusual coincidence that it had ended up in the hands of someone with the very same name. The two girls got in touch by telephone, and the coincidence was amusing and harmless enough that the girls' parents arranged for them to meet face-to-face, -face, whereupon they discovered a number of other uh, similarities beyond uh, the two girls sharing the same name. The Lauras were the same height, exactly. They had the same build, the same eye color. They looked very similar. They were both fair-haired. They both wore jeans with pink jumpers to their initial meeting. They both had gray rabbits, guinea pigs, 
and they both had a three-year-old black Labrador as pets. Both girls brought their guinea pigs, which were the same color, with similar markings to their initial meeting. It's pretty amazing, <laughs> isn't it? In uh, 2010, when the girls were in college, the first Laura's mother uh, stated in an interview, Laura Buxton, that released the balloon is my daughter, and she's now 19 years old. The girls are still very good friends. They meet up as often and when time and commitments allow them. In fact, they are meeting again before they go th- go, both go back to university. And the mother states, we have no idea why this happened, but it did, and out of it has come a wonderful friendship. That sounds like an episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, it's really pretty funny. Uh, you know, Laura Buxton releases a, a balloon. It travels 140 miles, and another girl with the exact same name, same age, very, very similar uh, looking, uh, finds the balloon. That's amazing. Okay, That's a nice so story to end that on. That is a very nice story to end on. So now that we have ended, it, it is time for the trivia challenge. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, <laughs> number one, like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Number two, like and share this episode post. Three, put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. And the first person to do that what are they the, going to do? What's going to happen? They will be the winner. Woohoo! We love winners. Uh, and we'll receive accolades. And who can who can beat that? <laughs> this one's pretty easy. You you could easily Google it. What balloon related event that actually turned out to be a hoax had everyone glued to their TV sets in October of 2009? Oh, that's such a good question. That's so such again, a good question. put that in if you know the answer, put that in the uh, comment section of our this balloon episode post on our facebook page very good very good well and also before you go please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any new stew maybe take a time to give us a review on itunes oh we love those reviews don't we share us with your friends your family your tax assessor your healthcare professional and remember whatever you do whenever you go Whomever you meet, choose to be kind and always stay curious. Until next time.